This podcast is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar Modules are designed, engineered, and assembled in their Texas-based 200-megawatt facility and serve residential, commercial, government, and utility applications. Adhering to the strictest quality standards, Mission Solar's modules outperform their competition in real-world conditions, proving to be an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. To find out more about Mission's high-power, American-quality modules, visit missionsolar.com. What is up, Boston? Wait. Whoa, 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 wait. Sorry, the Boston metropolitan region, Somerville, Massachusetts, what's up? Do we have any Energy Gang listeners in the house? All right, cool, cool. So that makes me feel a little welcome. I need that to boost my confidence when I'm at a place like this. And there are all these really intelligent engineers and entrepreneurs and investors around. I get paid to sit up here and talk about what you all are doing. And uh, you guys get to do what you're doing without getting paid. So we all know our roles, right? And Wait, speaking do we get paid roles, for this? <laughs> are we supposed to be getting paid? Speaking of roles, get paid I'm Stephen Lacey, the editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media, and this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. We are in Somerville, Massachusetts at Greentown Labs. Let's hear it for the folks in front of us. Thank you love people back home. So Greentown, as you all know, is the biggest uh, accelerator, incubator in the country for clean tech. It's hardware focused. Yeah, Greentown is in expansion mode right now. There's some construction going on around us. Tens of thousands of new square feet, new lab space, new co-working space. It's really incredible. And when I walked in the door, they gave me a hard hat immediately. And I was like, man, they take this hardware stuff really, really seriously. <laughs> Speaking of seriousness, these folks are going to take it really seriously, too. And they sat me down before we started recording and were like, we're coming into startup land. We need to establish our startup bona fides. Why don't we just change our names a little bit to make sure that we sound a little bit more startup-y? So Jigger was like, just add an L-Y to the end of my name and make me Jiggerly. <laughs> and then Catherine, who spells her name with a K, was like, okay, all these startups, they start their, you know, their C names with a K. I'll be Catherine with a C. So, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, Catherine with a C, Jigger Lee, welcome, welcome these folks. <laughs> Catherine is a partner at 38 North Solutions, she's the co-founder there, and she is a clean tech warrior in Washington, D.C., and uh, Jigger Shaw is the president and co-founder of Generate Capital, and uh, he's doing a lot of work to deploy money to the entrepreneurs who are in this room and spread throughout the country. How are you guys doing? Great. Yeah? I got here a little early. So you I flew in here from a crazy, crazy day in Washington. Yeah. And so to try to get just my core center back, I went to the Museum of Fine Arts, which is absolutely amazing. So <laughs> that was worth it. So you both live in D.C. now, right? Yes. And you were in New York City. You moved back to D.C. You've been in D.C. for a while. I was there for about five years. You know, we talk a lot about D.C. politics, New York City, what's going on in New York the Bay Area companies, but the Northeast, very important clean tech market. We don't talk about it as much, and we probably should. So coming into the Boston area, I'm curious, what's this area got that you think D.C. doesn't have? Science-loving Republicans. (laughs) Science-believing Republicans. Yeah, I mean, the MFA was amazing. I love the T. I mean... It runs sometimes. The DC Metro doesn't run. They, they, they're neck and neck for poor serviceability. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, uh, let's talk about what we're going to discuss this evening, shall we? So, we're going to be taking a slightly different approach since we're here at Greentown amongst these fine entrepreneurs and investors. First up, we're picking our top startup related stories of the year. What grabbed our attention, made us think differently, or reinforced our thinking. Then it's a virtual coffee date. We get a lot of requests for coffee or drink meetings from scrappy, aspiring clean tech tycoons, and we're going to share our sage advice to the most common questions we get asked. And then we're going to do a news circuit. We're going to go around the top headlines of the week and help put some of them into context. And we will, of course, at the end of the week, tell you something you may not know. So let's hear it, Catherine. What's your top startup story of the year? Could be a trend, a technology, a company. What grabbed your attention? Yeah, so 
I love all of them. First, I just have to say that I have four kids, so you can never say which one you like the boat the most, right? I love y'all. Even though there is one, I love all y'all. There's always the one. Um, But I've been following Lo3 Energy, and it's a blockchain company. And what they're doing is, in addition to doing something that nobody knows how to describe, they're actually taking this like backdoor approach to doing what. I've been working to try to get hap- to happen in New York, which is a DSO, a distributed system operator. So they're kind of like coming in the back door of that. And I think they're really cool. Um, it's not just, I mean, they don't think of themselves necessarily as a blockchain company. That's just what they use as their ledger. Um, but it's all transactive energy. And I think what it will do is connect all the dots for all the solar entrepreneurs, all the de- de- demand response entrepreneurs, all, all of the inverter folks, it just connects everybody in a way that consumers are really going to be able to have a lot more power. And in my mind, that is going to be the biggest transition is when consumers are actually able to take decisions and become a resource and not just a load. We've been talking about this a long time, but I think this is going to make it happen. And it could be another company too, but I've been following them because they're they're doing this in Brooklyn. They also have a couple of projects in Germany with DSOs. And uh, so I'm pretty excited about it. Jigger's checking his phone right now. He's like, what the hell is blockchain? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think blockchain is actually going to be transformative in the energy industry? We have seen some very interesting startups, some who've had initial coin offerings that have raised a bunch of money. They seem to have pilot projects that are actually interesting. What does this actually mean for energy? Well, I think blockchain is different from um, ICOs, right? So I don't know that they're... The, the same, like blockchain to me is really more about figuring out how to dramatically reduce transaction costs um, by having radical transparency around, you know, who gets what, when and how and, and recording everything in the ledger, which I think is extraordinary. And I do think that as we move to transactive energy, which is, I do think, where we're headed around demand response, load control and all these other pieces, um, people do, you know, will earn like 31 cents a day or 200, like, $45 a year or whatever it is. And and doing full due diligence on every single payment just won't work. And so you need something like blockchain to make it work. But that's separate from whether cryptocurrencies do you will work. Though, do you need, really need it to work? I mean, Well, I think I'm so because I think ultimately it works if you are small and don't care, right? So when you're small and you're basically not really like um, auditing all of your books and all that stuff, then it doesn't matter, right? But at the time at which you get big enough to matter and you're actually saving the you know, northeast from the polar vortex or whatever it is that you're doing in terms of the total amount of, of this transactive energy work that you're doing, um, the numbers get pretty big. And, and it's really expensive to hire lawyers and accounting firms to make sure that everyone got paid the right amount. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll make everything simpler. So what is that vision of the DSO that you've been talking about for so long? Like, what does transactive energy look to you? And, and today, you know, we have so many enabling technologies and emerging regulatory mechanisms, is it much different than the way you imagined it 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Yeah, completely, because they're technologies we didn't imagine 10 and 15 years ago. So absolutely. I think conceptually we've had this thought that consumers should be able to engage more. When I was running the Gridwise Alliance, we talked a lot about consumers being part of the grid and the smart grid will, would enable this, but there wasn't really a, mechan- a great mechanism to do it. A lot of people just put out smart meters and they're just sitting there collecting data. Nobody's doing anything with it. So now there's, there's a mechanism for doing that. And I think um, having chugging along all this time, we're innovators who were bringing all of these new applications in that would enable us to transact and to really become part of the system. So we have been talking about consumers being part of the system for a long time, but this is a tool that we didn't have. So I'm sold on the need for some kind of ledger to verify transactions, but I'm not sold on the microtransactions that people keep talking about. Large, you know, large companies in the space like IBM are talking about these microtransactions where your coffee maker turns on and off or your dishwasher runs at a certain time and you make a, you know, a couple bucks a week, but you're not really thinking about it. Uh, and you're maybe either buying the solar power from your neighbor or your, your appliances are turning on and off and you have a system to verify those transactions and events. 
I don't know that like I'm completely sold on the the like the extremely granular use of those technologies to create a you know a peer to peer marketplace. Yeah, well, that's because energy. you only just closed in a house today. <laughs> <laughs> You never had any reason to be sold on this stuff because you were renting. But um, no, like I, you know, I, I think that I think that um, you're not going to get sold on it because that's not the model, right? Yeah. The model you don't is need to, be. to the, get the, you. The, 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 I'm not supposed to care about it, basically. Yeah, you're going to get Google Home or Alexa or whatever it is, and then someone's going to say, "Hey, do you want to pay your electricity bill?" buy your credit card and get points and you're like yeah of course I'll sign up on that and then suddenly like you'll forget to uncheck a box and then they're going to start demand responsing your house right and making all sorts of really cool stuff right and then you're going to be like wait a second I want to opt out of this as a verb. I like that's that. right right but that's how this goes right this notion that we're going to have a 45 minute conversation with every single consumer and explain all the complexity to this is ridiculous right we're going to say oh you just bought a new refrigerator Hey, you know, it's got this new feature that allows you to, like, you know, check to see your refrigerator temperature by your phone. And you never ask, well, why do I need that feature? You don't, but I need that feature to control your refrigerator from a demand response point of view. And then when you plug it in, it'll automatically be hooked up because I'll say, you know that, like, your utility is going to give you a $20 rebate for having this refrigerator. And in the fine print at the bottom, it's going to say, you know, in exchange for accepting that $20 rebate and cashing the check, I get to do demand response on your refrigerator. And so, like, that's how this yeah. goes, right? And then there's going to be consumer protection board issues, and people are going to say, oh, great, let's create a bunch of rules around how that works, etc. But in the end, what will end up happening is we'll have a much lower cost way to manage the grid than having, you know, natural gas peaker plants that run 14 days a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is all happening while a lot of these plants are shutting down, while you know, there are a lot of retirements, and I think it's going to, it's timely, because by the time we need more energy, it's going to be on the other side, the grid. Well, where I am sold is LO3's initial use case, which is developing a microgrid and then using that as a bespoke way to sell artisanal energy. So you, you can buy the you know, farm-to-table electrons and know that you're getting <laughs> your, your Brooklyn rooftop solar delivered to your espresso maker and... People, I think that's how they're marketing it, and people eat it up. And I think that's the with their first No, no, they toast. drink it up <laughs> with their coffee maker. It's going to be such yeah, but it, be, like, it's better not tasting just, coffee. It's not just homeowners. It's also small businesses. And small businesses have such small margins. It's, this is going to help everybody. And I think that's where you're going to see the biggest bang for the buck. It's not necessarily the, yeah, you're, you're going to get homeowners that have, you know, Tesla shingles in a car, but I really think you're gonna real they're gonna help the business side more than anything. Yeah, I also think that you're just not like you're not thinking about this from an event driven standpoint. Like for instance, last week I live in, you know, this crazy county called Montgomery County in Maryland, which always has power outages. We just live with them. And so last week we had four power outages that averaged like, you know, eight we, seconds. We've heard you talk about each, Pepsi, right? Yeah, they suck. But <laughs> But in any case, like, I, I guarantee you, like, you know, the next time, like, the laws are enabling, I could go onto my Facebook listserv and, like, just say, hey, who wants to make this neighborhood into a microgrid? And they're going to say, yeah, screw the Pepco people, I'll do that. And then you say, great, like, you know, well, here's how we do that. And everyone will opt in because they just had like eight eight second power outages last week, and their alarm yeah. clock was flashing, and they had to go around the house and and fix all the clocks. And they're like, "Screw these people! I'm going to sign in with Jigger and do this like thing, right?" So, like that's how this goes. Is like something happens, you have a hurricane or a derecho, a thing, whatever. You know, power line goes down, and someone says, "There's got to be a better way." Well, in fact, there is. You know, like here you go. Yeah, and we're not going to stand for having week and two week outages anymore. I mean, people just expect unless better. you're in Puerto Rico and then it's Which out for a year. They still don't have power. Yeah. Why the hell did you move back to Montgomery County? You're sandwiched by the two things you hate most: Pepco and the Energy Information Administration. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of extraordinary people like Catherine around. <laughs> that's right. She makes DC tolerable oh, for gosh, sure. Gosh, that's so scary. So, are you sold on LO3 as a company, or are you just more interested in blockchain? I mean, for, they're, for the, they're the ones I know the best yeah. because I've worked with them more. I've learned more about them. But I think that others could do it, too. I just, I'm, I'm not as familiar with all the other, tech, all the other companies that yeah. are doing this. But I think blockchain is going to be important. And I'll tell you a story. When I was in um, 
I do this World Economic Forum uh, gig, and this is sort of my second go around. And the last time I did it, it was four years ago, and I walked in and I said, energy storage. And everybody looked at me like I had a second head, and they said, is that a thing? And I said, yes, energy storage is amazing, and it's gonna, it, we have to build it into everything we do. And this time, energy storage was just part of what they talked about. We walked in and they said, oh, everybody said, oh, we have to do energy storage. And when I started bringing up blockchain, they started looking at me like I had another head. And I'm, just wait. <laughs> Next time we're here, we're going to be talking about it because it'll be fully there. So I think it's like every other innovation that's really got a lot of uses and a lot of value. I think it'll keep moving. Jigger, what's your story of the year? So my story is a company called Synode. Um, and the reason I care so much about it is it's, I mean, they're a company that came out of Northwestern University and they, um, um, you know, created a much more efficient silicon anode. Like a graphene a anode. Graphene coated anode and a very specific use case and, you know, provides a much more efficient battery. Um, but what they did was they only raised a million dollars worth of VC money or angel money in their case. And what they did was they really forced their customers to fund them and said, look, if you really want this innovation, then you guys have to sort of like pitch in and prepay for some of our development expenses to get us to, you know, commercialization and then utilize the, the product once it gets there. And I just found that the whole model was quite fascinating because it guarantees you that you have alignment with your customer, right? Because otherwise, like, you know, like, it, otherwise you end up going down the pathway, burning a whole bunch of cash, and then like, ending up like not in a place where the customers are, you know, demanding your product, right? Where in this case, they've already like invested some money such that they're actually like, you know, in, in it with you. Yeah, it's another really good story because I think it's very consistent with what we've been talking about tonight here at Greentown Labs and what Greentown tries to do, which is connect hardware materials uh, startups with corporate players who can give them the capital, the expertise, and the equipment to test that stuff. And Synode has done exactly that. It's a process and materials innovation. And then they've worked with GM, Chrysler, Ford to, in partnerships to actually test the anode. And so you've got this marriage of something that can be dropped into existing lithium-ion battery production, and you're partnering with corporate players who are interested in those process innovations that can really improve the performance of the battery. Yeah, and I also and I think that it's a business model that's actually available to many more companies than actually try it. And so hopefully they've inspired other folks to look at their own businesses and see whether they can benefit from the same model. So you have a market. You yeah. know your market. Yeah. You know, uh, I was thinking about a company that is the opposite of Synode. Um, and the one that came to mind was this Australian company called Redflow that's developing a vanadium flow battery for the residential sector. And it tried to, comp it tried to invent an entirely new battery, uh, own the entire supply chain, deploy it for an unproven sector where lithium ion is king, and they have had nothing but troubles. And, they, they, uh, and so they've since sort of scaled the battery for remote uses for like cell towers and communications towers. But it's like the exact opposite. And you look at a company like Sino, which has been able to grow off of a very small investment, and a company like Redflow that, Flow that has had a lot of trouble because they're trying to own every piece of the supply chain. Yeah, I mean, look at any company that Vinod Coastal has invested in. They're all the same. <laughs> well, and those, that's the reason why biofuel companies have all failed, because they're trying to reinvent an entirely new Well, they don't, they don't validate themselves with a customer. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, I mean, there, there are lots of people who have use... validated themselves with customers. Not really. They give like 100,000 gallons to Delta and say, hey, you know, we've like done three or four of these test pilot things or whatever. It's more about like, I mean, it's a high bar for us to have to go and sign a PPA with a customer before we, manu before we build a solar system. But they can do the same thing. They can go to Delta or United and say, do a 10-year PPA for these like, um, this biofuels and, and then like, you know, charge an extra, you know, 21 cents per passenger at the airport to like actually make sure it all gets paid for. And, and a lot of these airports would do it, right? Because they actually want to like support a biotech industry in their hometown or in their area. And, and, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline to do that model. And I think a lot of folks just don't have the discipline for it. Well, and on the battery side, I do think there are going to be a lot of other chemistries that come along that do different things, but you have to ask yourself, what's the problem you're trying to solve? 
what do you, what's the problem that no one else is solving and where are the gaps and fill them rather than trying to replicate what lithium's doing fine? Yeah, and it, I mean, in Australia, they don't need necessarily an eight or 10 hour residential battery. They need fast responding batteries. And a lot of consumers are, are interested in backup power because you know, the South Australian grid is in terrible shape. So not anymore. There was a hundred megawatt battery that went in. Six That's right. Days. We'll talk about that. We'll we'll table that conversation for now. <laughs> so my story is about a topic that we've discussed a couple of different times in different iterations, and it's about the role of large energy corporates, particularly global utilities, but also materials companies, um, automotive companies, making bold acquisitions and partnerships in distributed energy companies. So we just actually heard some great pitches from a bunch of interesting startups who are now getting funded in, through DSM and you know, a very large global materials company. And this is the type of partnership that you know, Greentown is trying to foster and that is becoming increasingly important. And in 2016, and particularly in 2017, that's where we saw this trend play out. So I sat down and just tried to think through some of the major acquisitions from the end of 2016 through this year. And the list is crazy. It's super long. Uh, here are just a few of them. So Enel, the Italian utility, acquired Demand Energy, uh, Tinmouth Energy Storage in the UK, Enernock, and E-Motor Works. I do have to issue a correction on E-Motor Works. We talked about this on the podcast, and I said that it was a company with 14 employees, and I heard from their PR person who was like, you have to say this in the next podcast. It's 55 employees. Oh, so yeah. I was wrong. But anyway, kudos to them. Um, Ormat, the major geothermal developer and power plant developer, which is really interested in energy storage and energy management, acquired Veridity Energy. Uh, Shell acquired, you know, Shell, who's a huge partner here for a lot of the startups, acquired uh, New Motion, the EV charging networking company, the wholesale energy provider, MP2 Energy in Texas. Uh, NG acquired EV Box. Uh, it, it invested in the distributed energy controls company, Optera. Acquired the CNI resource management company, Ecova, and it's partnering with Tendril, and then well, a and bunch of other. Green Charge Networks. And Green Charge Networks, that's right. And uh, other notable investments are Oracle Bot. O-Power, GE acquired Daintree Networks, the smart lighting company. Southern Company bought microgrid developer PowerSecure. Mitsui bought up Sun Edison's CNI assets because they want this like holistic corporate energy management, whatever the hell that means these days. Um, and NG uh, invested in Green Charge. Yeah, and that's just like a, a, some of the bigger acquisitions. There were dozens and dozens more, and I think through this year we'll probably see upwards of $4 billion in acquisitions in the last you know, four, or five, four or five years. And it's really incredible. Yeah, and wouldn't you say that most of those have a proven business model and, or workable business model and a proven use case? Each yes. of those companies have a use case. But there is one difference, and that is most of these acquisitions, these high-profile acquisitions, are, they're not tech companies or materials innovators. They are service providers, and they're tech integrators. So I'd say the big acquisitions we're seeing are for a different type of business model. Yeah, but I would say that the DSM approach, I think, is more interesting because, you know, they're, they're a very large materials company and they basically are an essential part of a lot of their customers' supply chains and products. And, you know, having these kinds of investments gives them one, like a... Um, insight into what the future is going to look like, and so they can actually uh, figure out where they should be positioning themselves. Um, but second of all, they actually have something really interesting to talk to their customers about, because their customers are sort of bored, right? They come, they come in and say, well, we've been buying from you for 20 years. Right? Why do we need to meet with you every quarter? And they're like, well, because we have interesting stuff to talk to you about now. Like, here are the companies that we invested in, and here's the stuff, and here's more insights. I mean, and you see that a lot with, like, roofing companies and others, where they... I mean, their customers are so used to working with them that they, um, they're like, we're going to keep buying from you. You don't have to keep coming by the office every quarter. And then so they actually need something interesting to say every quarter and say, look, here's interesting stuff that we're working on. It's a weird dynamic, but it's different than I think the NLs and NG and the GE and, o and Oracle stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's a pretty easy bullish case for this, at least for startups, but like, is there a bearish case? I've tried to express my bearish sentiments about this, and, and I think where I'm a little bit more skeptical is 
the surge of acquisitions among big utilities that are just desperate to find companies that are going to upend them or that already are that already are upending them. Um, and I don't think that they have a clear, coherent strategy often. Um, I could very well be proven wrong, but at least for the large players like Edison International and GE who've attempted to throw together this kitchen sink strategy on the CNI management side, they've had to split up their businesses, they've had to lay people off, they haven't been able to do it correctly. So there's this like vision of the future for layering all these tech, this tech and solutions together. No one's proved it could work, and I worry that utilities that start making all these acquisitions in the hopes that they're going to combine all these businesses into one holistic service are potentially going about it all wrong. I don't think we have enough data points to know yet, but I think we've seen some struggles from people who've tried that. And I wonder if you all agree, because I've tried to get you to agree and you don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I think you're the definition here. of insanity. You're yeah. asking the same question over and over again, time. expecting different three, answers. Then I'll be insane. What's, what, I mean, do you, do you agree with any of that? Like, I, I really fundamentally believe that you're looking at some... Can I just, just say no? Y- sure, right. sure, sure. But why? Why? No, we have this conversation. I look, I think that I think that we're in a different place today, right? I mean, and now that you own a home, you'll know that like, you know, that all these things can be automated. No, look, I I believe that um but these first utility- of all, they haven't even figured out like the retail contract game here in the competitive market in Massachusetts. Like the the competitive electricity suppliers that approach me and attempt to like sell us a new service are horrible. So like we haven't even gotten to a level where they, they can like deliver a good service there. So <laughs> Right, but I'm just saying Enel is one of the largest utility companies in the world with like 70 million meters that they control. And these companies can provide so much efficiency within their own electric utility business that they don't actually even have to sell externally to pay for, you know, the cost that they paid for. Right? And so so I, I just think that you're you're basically suggesting that if these companies acquire, if these utility companies acquire these companies and then can't make them household names, then, they've been, then they're a failure. And I'm saying that like that wasn't their intention. For one, the entrepreneur hopefully got a payday out of it, mm-hmm. and so now they can live to fight another day and start up three more companies, which is awesome. Two, like these utility companies can actually gain a huge amount of savings in-house, which is great. And then three, they do actually have these established customer bases and established products that they're buying with these companies, which they, they probably do have some internal expertise by which to help them sell wider and farther, which may or may not work, and it hasn't worked in the past, but it is something that they have available to them if they used it correctly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's different from what happened to Sun Edison, where I was like, don't eat anything bigger than your own head. And it just everything fell apart. But this, these feel different because and they so are so much smaller compared. Yeah, to the they're company. smaller. They're proven. They have teams on the ground that understand all the policies and their business models, and they can go forth. It's not like they're trying to do everything that they don't know how to do. They're better fits. Let's take a minute here to talk about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Third-party testing has shown that Mission Solar modules have the highest PTC ratings of any American manufactured module. You know what that means? It means the modules maintain higher output in real-world conditions when compared to other American modules. Mission Solar's modules are subjected to multiple quality checks throughout the manufacturing process and endure stringent quality and reliability testing. Each product exceeds industry requirements and is backed by an independent 25-year linear warranty. To learn more about Mission Solar's high-quality modules and to see them get run over and shot by a tank and hit with a flamethrower, visit missionsolar.com. Thanks, Mission. Let's move on. It's coffee time now. I guess cocktail time. Uh, depending on your preference time of day, we're, we're sitting here. You grab triggers drinking his beer. Uh, we're all networkers here. We're all looking for our own mentors. And we also get a lot of queries up here from folks who you know, want to pick our brains, so to speak. So when an entrepreneur asks you out for coffee, lunch, or a drink, What's the single most important common question that they have, and how do you answer it? May I have two? Sure, as many as you want. All right, the first is Mm job-related. So a lot of people are looking to do policy. How do I get into policy? How do I get a job in policy? What do I do to do what you do? And with that one, 
I always say you have to live life. You have to know how things work. You can't just jump in and expect to understand how everything works if you don't go through the process of it. So I always tell people, go, you know, I, I designed grids for a utility. That was great. I know how electrons flow. I know how things work. So go and do that or go and be with a business and understand how a business model works or go and work for a finance company, understand how, the fin how you, you know, pull a project together and close a deal. Learn how things work because then you'll understand how policy could affect it. That's kind of the first thing, but it leads into the second. Well, can I just comment? Yes. My journalism teacher told me that the one thing I shouldn't study if I wanted to be a journalist was journalism. Exactly. Now look where I got me. Oh, you did. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, live life. Go through and do right. things that are interesting. Yes, yeah, learn absolutely. how things work. The other piece is that companies poo-poo this issue of policy. Well, we don't have enough money to do policy. We don't... I'm just going to listen to the energy gang. I don't, need to know. I don't need to invest in policy. And I say, yes, you do. It should be part of your business model. It should be what you think about as you think about growing your business because policy is the thing that can completely be the brick wall that you slam into and you're not able to go another step. And by policy, I mean not just legislative policy, but regulatory policy, interconnection policy, all of those things that are, happen on a local level, state level, and federal level that can just shut everything down. And so I think of policy as not of policy as for policy's sake, but really as part of a business strategy or a part of it. It doesn't have to be a business. It, it could also be um, an NGO, uh, you, you know, a campaign, an issue strategy, or um, if you're doing an environmental campaign, sort of that strategy rather than a business strategy. But it, it's, it's not policy for policy's sake. So those are the two big pieces. Yeah, so this is a moment in time, of course, where I think a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed and wondering how they can get more involved in policymaking in some way, either through a direct lobbying effort or even you know, running for office. Um, and we're in, in this situation now where there's this, this horrendous abomination of a tax bill that's going forward that looks like it could you know, destroy the tax equity market or at least put a serious dent in it. And I'm just wondering, when you have these moments where there's this bill going forward that seems kind of unstoppable and a slave to this hideous political moment, how can startups sitting in this room go and make their voices heard, you know, when it just feels so difficult to do so? It sounds like you're not getting paid on a pass-through LLC. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the reality is sort of two sides. One is, yes, the donor class uh, is in charge of this tax bill. Yeah. So it's going to go through. There's nothing we can do about that, really. But then you have to say to yourself, I have to at least try. So call your member of Congress, call your senator, tell them what you think. Meet them at their office. Talk about what you do. Talk, in, educate them. I mean, the, you can't just go to a policymaker with a problem, first you want to go to them with what you're doing. Here's what I'm doing. It's really cool. It's a solution, and it's something that you should care about, and here's why, and here's how it affects your constituents. So I think that on a very granular grassroots level, introduce yourself, educate people, and then when something happens, you can call them and say, hey, remember that time I came and visited you and told you about this cool thing I was doing? You're just about to pull the rug out from under that cool thing. Yeah. That's how you can do it. But when everybody in the community sees something that was slipped in that was completely unexpected at the last minute, setting yourself on fire is not really going to work. So how easy is it for a startup, an entrepreneur, to get a meeting with their representative or their, their senator? And how likely is it, is it that that politician will take a meeting or they give you would they hand you over to their staff? And what kind of questions will their staff ask you? I mean, these are the sort of things that people should know if they're really going to go and engage. Yeah, if you want to engage with a senator or, or a representative, go to a fundraiser and give them a bunch of money. I mean, that's the answer Yeah, there's that's tons the of money in that. These but, pockets are flush with cash. <laughs> just falling. But you will meet, be meeting with staff. I meet with staff all the time. That is fine because the staff is the brain power behind that member of Congress and the staff writes the memo that says this is what you should or shouldn't do. 
So that's fine. Find the right staff to meet with and start educating them and letting them know what you do and why it's important and why it's important why and that there's a community around it too. So I think a, something like this lab is great that they have a group of companies that as a group could have a voice. You just have to be able to talk about what you're doing in a way that's compelling and you might not use the same words for each kind of person that you meet with. So you can use different words. You can use environmental words with some people in, in Massachusetts. It's easier to use those words with other people. I went into a Republican office recently, and I said the words natural disaster, and they said, whoop, 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 sounds like climate change. And I was like, natural disaster? Like, what should I use? Act of God. What, is, what are the appropriate words that I can use? Because natural and disaster don't... Necessary, it's not a climate change thing necessarily, even though we all know it is. Um, so I think you just you have to learn how to speak. You need to be honest and upfront, and you need to be okay to meet with staff. That's fine. That's what we do all the time. There, there's another end of this spectrum, and, and this is something that Jigger's talked more and more about lately, and that is uh, something you mentioned on the previous panel, which is engaging your local community differently, um, you know, becoming a part of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, sponsoring that billboard on the little league field, you know, owning the town basically, like a lot of traditional energy companies have done. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's I, 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 it's right. Uh, <laughs> throw some money around. No, look, I, um, I actually find it quite shocking how few clean tech entrepreneurs do what Catherine is suggesting. Right? I mean, when I moved back to Maryland, I was like. Who's my state delegate? Who's my like, you know, state senator? Who's like the person who represents me in like Montgomery County? Like I actually called them all up and said, hey, we should meet for coffee. We should do stuff. Like it's honestly shocking to me how like much people like decry democracy and this and that and how it's not working, whatever. But they don't actually participate in democracy. They don't actually call their elected officials. And it's not just your like your house member or your senator or the president. Like it's also like your city council member, your mayor, all these other people, School right? Board. School board. I mean these people like all know each other and then they can actually help network you into the right places, etc. And it's not that much time. You spend that much time on lots of other things. And it's not that much money. Like even if you like um, do have to pay money on a fundraiser or whatever else, it's like it's really not that much money. And as Catherine said, when you actually do need their help and you do need their attention, you have like rude the day that you didn't like give the $250 like, you know, six months earlier such that like you would have like actually been able to have more influence on that thing. Yeah, right? showing so. up is so important. And on, on the regulatory front, going, submitting testimony, testifying, and it doesn't have to be written necessarily in legalese unless you're doing it for FERC. I mean, otherwise, you can go and testify. You can testify in your state uh, you can testify house. in you church. Can testify in ch you can testify. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can testify in regulatory proceedings, and that makes a huge difference. We had, I don't know, it was four days or something to write testimony to submit in that Puerto Rico microgrid thing. And I was yeah. like, daggone it, I'm using my weekend and I'm going to write testimony because some, somebody's got to get something in the record. Right. You do that, show up and submit. That's how this works. Yeah, anytime something complicated, anytime something complicated is happening, I'm always like, Catherine, what are you writing? What are you filing? And I'm like, let me read it so I can understand what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. What about you, Jigger? What do people ask you about? What's the most common question? Uh, well, they usually ask me for money. Um, um, I, I do find it like a little bit strange. Um, like I, in general, I would say that that when when asking people for money or advice or you know asking folks to join your advisory board, I've had lots of those types of flavors. Um, I've I've always been so confused, right? Like it's sort of like. So you just go up to someone you've never met before and you just ask them for money or ask them to be on your advisory board. When you like ask them like questions to get to know them better, like figure out like what's going on, what they might invest in, like you know, like what their interests are, etc. Before you like go, hey, you should invest in my company because it's so awesome. I'm like, I get it, but like I don't know you, so why don't we actually have a conversation first, right? Like I, I actually find it really strange because I don't have a problem asking, you know, like talking to people about money. That's sort of what I do with generate capital, but I, I do find it odd that like folks have sort of lost this 
ability to actually like connect at a personal level first before you like get into all these other topics and issues. And so you didn't just things. walk up to the manager of the Alaskan Sovereign Wealth Fund and ask for $200 million? I did not. And it was only 100 <laughs> that we got from the Alaskan Sovereign Fund. But, um, but, it's, um, but no, I, I think that it's, yeah, it's one of those weird things where I, I, I find it very strange. Because um, as, as someone that like, you know, like, you know, like, started a company and did all that stuff as well. Like I, I did my homework, like, you know, David Busby was the first like investor in Generate and, um, you know, we like figured out like what he did and like how he made his money and like how to like tie my presentation to his experiences and like some of that stuff, like you do your research first, um, listen to a couple energy gang podcasts. <laughs> like it's, I, I actually find it to be, <laughs> I took all your advice, David. Uh, yeah, I just think that um, it, it is very peculiar to me how um, fast-paced everyone wants to make everything, and as opposed to like higher quality. Okay, so then what should the first question be if it's not what kind of what? How much money can you give me? Well, I think the first thing is like making. Well, first of all, making sure that like if it's a money, if it's a meeting for you to ask me for money, making sure that I'm prepared to actually answer. So like sending me enough materials that I can review beforehand so I actually know something about your business before we meet. Um, and then second of all, it's like actually like getting my advice first about sort of the industry and how things are going and like, you know, how you fit into the industry, what niches you're going after and like just learning more about your sort of trials and tribulations and seeing if I'm a fit, like if my experience even like is one that could be helpful to like what it is that you're doing. Um, cause I'm not going to invest if there's nothing I can do to help you except give you money, right? Like if I, if I don't have any special right. insights into what it is that you're going through or your, your business challenges, et cetera. Right. So I, um, yeah. So I think that that's the biggest thing that people ask me about and I give people as advice. Hmm. Yeah. Both really, really good advice. How about you? Um, well, I get a lot of people who are like, why don't you cover us in green tech media? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you just got to get as rich as Peter Thiel and then file a lawsuit, fund that lawsuit, shut us down, buy us back up, and then cover whatever the hell you want. <laughs> um, My mom doesn't think I made it unless I'm in green tech media. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a couple things that I think are interesting when you're a journalist covering a lot of different companies. Um, so we might cover some startups and not others. Why is that? We might cover some big transactions and not others. Uh, it can, from the outside, feel a little lumpy. Um, but we're often looking for good storylines, right? And so there are a lot of transactions happening all the time. But if we're not made to see, if we don't already see it, if we're not made to see how this fits into sort of a broader narrative, a broader storyline, it can be a lot harder to like get your message to cut through. So I think first and foremost, when you're pitching the press or you're thinking about what your message should be, you're always trying to think about this broader narrative of what's going on in the world, in the energy sector, in the tech sector, in politics. And when you can start to connect those dots and in a very simple way explain why what you're doing matters in that context, we're suckers for narratives. And there's a, more often than not, we'll you know, respond to that email or have a more of a detailed conversation. And so I think that's, that's really critical. Then there are uh, like a couple other sm small things that are important for people to do. So, and I'm not like hucking GTM, by the way, but like stuff like webinars are really good for lead generation. And if you want to target like a certain number of people and give a presentation about what your company does, you can get a ton of names and, you know, provide thought leadership through things like that. Or pitch your CEO on a, on a panel discussion somewhere. Like, we hold conferences all the time, and we get really shitty pitches from people and some really good pitches from people. And sometimes it's from a company that we're not following closely, but because they've couched this broader narrative and it fits into the guide, like the, the things that we want to cover at a conference, we're like, oh, yeah, that person should be on a panel for sure. So I think it's really thinking about storytelling. And a lot of people, you'd be surprised. It sounds like common sense, but a lot of people are so bad at it, and it does take practice. Well, and that's part of how when we do our show, I'm always trying, you send the, the stories out ahead of time, and I try to think, 
what is the thing that no one else is going to say? It's going to be about policy, probably. But what is sort of the what is the angle that I can I'm like the hammer policy policy? Um, but it it's finding what what is the gap or what is what is it that no one else is saying? Right, that will you can then tell a story about that's a little different. Yeah, yeah. I always am trying to figure out how to like say people need to move. Yeah, right, oh, right. Yeah, God. God. Here we go. Again. <laughs> thing that he ever says. How do I fit that into the story? <laughs> or you could just start your own podcast. <laughs> We've got a Charlie ticket right here for you, Jigger. This will be my last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's do the news circuit. Talk about some headlines, right? Yeah. This Tesla 100 megawatt battery was installed in South Australia. Elon Musk turned to Twitter and said that I will install this battery in 100 days or less, or you can have your money back. It'd be about a $50 million bet if he lost it. He did it. The battery is getting commissioned right now. Um, what does this mean for the industry? You said point, go to Jigger. Jigger, what, like, is this an important milestone or a one-off novelty? Well, it's obviously all of the above. But I when, think when you're talking about Tesla, it's always <laughs> a novelty. About, it's all of the above. But, but I do think it's a milestone around... Um, the responsiveness of battery storage, right? That like that this huge crisis occurred, and you know the, the fact that battery storage can be deployed in sixty days versus a natural gas combined cycle plant that would have taken a lot longer to put in, um, or other not just construct but permit. And yeah. I mean, you're talking about a serious absolutely, and you see that with solar projects all the time. People are always shocked when like. You know, like there's there's some build up, you know, some some permissions you need, et cetera. But then you can like build a huge Walmart, you know, like rooftop in you know, 27 days or something. Uh, and we're like, wait, how did that happen? Like, well, because this is pretty modular and people are good at it, and and we can get stuff done quickly. And that's the beauty of this distributed generation infrastructure that we're moving towards. And the fact that he was able to prove that with this project, I think, was a big milestone. And it was proven with Aliso Canyon. They put that For project sure. together really quickly. That's but right. it didn't involve explain a series of breast-thumping tweets. Yeah, can you yeah. explain so, what Aliso Canyon is for folks? So that was where there was a big gas leak, and they needed to backfill instead of having gas, having storage. And I, they did it in six months. It was super no, fast. Yeah. Yeah, Less was, than that, maybe three months. Yeah, and, and AES was a part of that, too, and did something pretty fast there, yeah, too. Yeah, AES, a bunch of other folks were contributing to that, and they were able to put it up in record time, and there wasn't a lot of fanfare about it. I mean, it, it was a good story, and you all covered it, but, uh, you know, it was, it was not significantly different from what happened in Australia. It just didn't have a tweet storm. Well, look, the tweets are good. I'm glad yeah, people, like, know a lot about it. Publicity. And, I'm glad that um, you know folks are thinking more about battery storage as opposed to doing you know 20th century stuff all the time. Yeah, well, uh, our Ravi Mangani, who runs our storage team at GTM Research, uh, you know their team has been working really hard in combining all this global market data from Wood Mackenzie, the company that that acquired us, and we're doing a lot of modeling uh, uh, on what storage looks like against peakers in different markets around the world. And I think um, you know five years is going to be really difficult for a gas plant to get built in many, many countries. So that's a, a, a lot of work that we're doing to sort of evaluate those broad economics in really important regions. Yeah, and these low-capacity plants won't need to be there anymore for peaking. All right, Catherine, to this, yeah, this yeah. tax bill. Yes. So we're probably going to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to drilling. Yes, we will. We're probably going to destroy the tax equity market or no. disrupt it. No, 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 no. Okay, so start with that then. Why should we not be as shocked or worried as? Well, I think we can be shocked and suggest. worried, but I don't think we need to self-emulate. I think we need to think about what this really does. It was a surprise. So the House tax bill did some real damage to the PTC. I mean, it said you no longer will have an inflation adju inflation adjustment that you don't have a safe harbor it was retroactive it was it was pretty damaging that was awful when the senate bill came out that wasn't in it the ptc and itc were not in it specifically so everybody said woohoo that's great but then there was this other thing that was stuck in that was pretty sneaky and it was called the beat the base erosion anti abuse tax and what that would do is it's for multinational banks, and it would tax, it would, it would make corporate tax liability um, from the equity investments in the tax credits. 
Um, and so it could have a bit of a dampening on tax equity. Yes, it won't hurt everybody. It will only hurt those that are multinational. So that's a, a bunch of the market. But honestly, this tax bill is a Frankenstein anyway. We do not know. It, it will pass. Pretty sure of that. Um, but we don't know what it will really do because I don't know what the... It's moving pretty fast. I mean, it is moving very fast. I'm not sure what how the Senate and House bills will shake out. I, the House can't just take the Senate bill as is because they're a bunch of state and local. The state and local tax issue is in there and the states that are going to be hurt the most. Is a, the House had the provision to help moderate Republicans such that they are um, in in New York, in California, New Jersey. Uh, so they protected their state and local tax write-offs. But uh, that's not in the Senate bill, and it really, really hurts those states. So they can't just take the Senate bill. They have to work something out. There will be some sort of, sort of conference. Now, it won't be the way we used to do, do conferences, which is you name conferees on each side of the aisle and each chamber, and everybody gets in a room. I used to sit in these rooms, and they would horse trade. That was also when they had... They, they had earmarks, so you were able to really trade projects, um, and everybody got a little piece of something. They're not going to do that. It'll so be the leadership. It'll be like four guys in a room saying, here's what we're going to do. And it'll only be one party with the Republicans, and they will decide what's going to happen. They'll throw a little bit back to the House, and they'll probably get it done. The Senate bill will probably pass this week. So tomorrow, when will Chuck Grassley roll in on a wind turbine blade and, like, cut everyone up and— so they don't touch this stuff. Oh, come on no, now. So it doesn't – see, this is the thing. He can still say he was a purist on this. And remember, he has people in his state, like Berkshire Hathaway, who will not be affected by this provision. So there are people that are not on the same in the same place on this. Um, so I think that's why he's not – laying down to die on it at all. I think this is not this is not his sword to fall yeah, on. Sure. I think this will go through and something will come out the other end um, and it'll be next week probably and I assume it'll pass both chambers because they are super, super desperate. Is Anwar going to be in this? Well, the, I think they will resolve that issue. Well, it'll be in litigation forever, but uh, the trick with Anwar, Anwar is it's not; it shouldn't be part of a tax provision by the rules of the of this budget reconciliation. It should have sixty votes. I think they're going to resolve that because this is what Murkowski's been living for for a long time. So, I think they'll figure out a way to get her that. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all right. What about the bond climate talks? What it, uh, hosted by Fiji? What interesting came out of those that just wrapped up a week and a half or two weeks ago? What should we be looking for out of there? Which is just more of a process than it was adhering to any type of goal. Yeah, I think that there is a um, misnomer, you know, around what these talks are and what they're not, right? What they are is really a way for folks to coordinate on how to move things forward. I think, you know, one thing that came out of it is that Syria signed, right? And that now every nation in the world has signed on to... Paris Climate Agreement. They're totally just trolling the U.S. None of the U.S. has signed as well, right? And the U.S. has not exited the climate agreement. And no matter what Trump says, like he actually has to wait four years to get out of it. So there's not much he can do about it. So I, like, I think we're in a situation where every country in the world has agreed that this is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetimes, and they want in on the action. And the conversation in Bonn is like, how do I get my like access to all these technologies for my country and how do I finance them and which, you know, financing industries do I, or, you know, uh, government bodies do I work with, whether it's like the European Investment Bank or the, or Overseas Private Investment Corp or Export Import Bank or, you know, other folks. And, and everyone is all in on it, right? And now folks are saying, well, which technologies do we go first on, right? Is it LED lighting or I mean, IEA came out very strongly and said it was going to be solar and wind. I mean, and um, and I just thought that that was, it's just a, it's a sea change to com compare to where we were just like a few years ago, right? I think the notion that all these guys, India, for India, 40% of all new power capacity this year will be solar, right? I mean, that's yeah. just enormous, right? As the MJ IEA said. numbers are incredible. I mean, like the, the $7 trillion new dollars in new investment in de developing countries and almost all of the energy access 
energy used for energy access by 2030 will be renewables. And developing countries can't raise $7 trillion. Like the fact that there's $7 trillion available for developing countries is a big deal, right? Like I just think that folks are just missing out on the, like, just the nuances of this, right? I mean, in the U.S., when we say, well, we're going to do a trillion-dollar stimulus bill or whatever else, it just sort of happens. Like in India, like, the number one thing that Piyush Goyal worries about every day when he comes to, like, New York or other places to have these meetings is, how do I get more capital into India? How do I get more people to invest in India, right? He actually, like, even if all the projects were laid out and all of the, you know, like, PPAs were signed, everything was ready to go, there aren't that many investors, like, ready to invest into 20-year assets into India. Right? And so all of that coordination on the sidelines at Bond matters. It matters a lot. Right? They express their, their inclination to want that money to come, and the money folks come in and say, here's what the requirements are that we have, and then they go back to their countries and change some of the rules to allow for that, that, those rights to be purveyed. And it's a really complicated process, but it leads to a huge amount of increased investment. Yeah, and they're trying to build more transparency into that, too, so they can know where all the, the flows are, the money flows. So they started that in Doha when they had the COP there. Some of the things that Fiji wanted to get done that they were able to do were they'd put together an, a gender action plan. They did a local communities and indigenous peoples platform and an ocean um, pathway partnership. And these are all about how do we work together. They also have, it's important for um, states to be involved, and when I say states, I mean on a national level, on a federal level, to be engaged. And I know that there were a lot of states states from the U.S. that went. Um, And so sub-national players are really important. They can't negotiate for their country. They, and they shouldn't be able to. I mean, they, it's important to have uh, one negotiating point for the country. But the good thing is you do pull together these partnerships um, and these coalitions, so this Powering Past Coal Alliance that is 20 countries and subnational, so some states are signing on. That's great because you pull these people together and you can get a lot done uh, regardless of what your, the top leader is saying. People walked out of the Trump Coal Forever presentation. Yes. Yeah, but what's interesting is that there was this you know, side event. The, the one official U.S. event was a pro-coal event. Right. But you actually have people in the State Department who are doing the work behind the scenes who are not leaving their jobs. They're going there, and they're actually still negotiating. They're the same people who have been negotiating people. the whole time. Yeah. So they're still there, and that's yeah, good. it's complete bullshit. It's just a, he gets, goes into the Rose Garden and talks about leaving the agreement, and you know, the, yeah, the we process our, is still underway. This week we had our 24th coal plant this year that shut down. So, uh, I had a few other stories, but I think we're running a little bit long on time. So let's tell our listeners something they may not know. Catherine, what's your story? So I was going to sort of glom onto the bond talks by talking a little bit about the Kigali Protocol, and we have spoken about this on a previous episode, uh, where it's it's building on the Montreal Protocol that essentially has eliminated CFCs. Uh, from the atmosphere and by setting up certain rules around that. And now there's the next protocol, the Kigali protocol, that is HFCs. And they're thousands of times more potent than CO2. And we have the the EPA has authority under the Clean Air Act to go forward with this. We've been carrying out our obligations for 30 years. We've met all the obligations of the Montreal Protocol And it looks like we are not backing out of this one. So this is a big deal because this can have an enormous impact. Now, there's some things we still have to get through, some legal issues, the Senate. But right now, the Trump administration is staying in it. And that's really important. Jigger, what's your story? So there's a publication in Denmark called Foresight Denmark. And they've put together a a huge amount of research, which I thought was interesting, that basically showed um, that the optimal amount of battery storage on the grid is only about 3.5% of the total peak demand. And I just thought it was interesting because we're not quite there yet now, so we have a large amount of growth to to go to get there. But um, I think there's this misnomer that folks believe that um, um, every you know, watt of wind and solar has to be backed up by storage and all that stuff. And that's just not true. That like, you know, a small amount of storage goes a long way. And and basically that that's where the modeling work is coming out, about three and a half percent of the grid. It needs to be backed up with storage and then the rest can be done with um, you know, demand response, load control and a lot of the other measures much more cost effectively. Blockchain. 
I'm going to pay deference to our hosts here. You know, there are tens of thousands of people who are going to listen to this show outside of this room. And for those who don't know Greentown Labs, uh, again, I mentioned that they're the largest clean tech incubator in the country. They're doing really incredible work. Um, This facility is already amazing, and they're expanding it uh, by many, many, many thousands of square feet. And I got to tour the facilities the other day, and I was taken aback by how gorgeous it is. And so if you are doing difficult hardware-related clean tech stuff, I highly recommend you come and check out this place because y'all are doing fantastic work. So uh, kudos to you. And I think that's our show, right? That's a wrap. Jigger Shaw, Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. Thanks to Greentown Labs for hosting us here. If you want to pull out those smartphones and write us a review or give us a five-star rating on iTunes, we'd appreciate that. It helps us find new listeners. You can also get us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon Alexa, Apple Podcasts, anywhere. Send us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com if you want to touch base. Thanks a lot for joining us. Have a good night.